WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. They singing all night, drinking wine, spooty oldie, drinking wine. Drinking wine with Len here on 1510 WMEX. Wine by design with Len Prasuti, a wine educator, a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry and the newest WMEX good guy. Join us every Friday here at 6 o'clock here on 1510 for Wine by Design with your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you so much, Ben, and welcome, everyone. Tonight, I wanted to start with a question from a listener. Believe it or not, a great question from Mike from Richmond, Virginia. He asked, what's the story with screw caps? Love it. Short, sweet, to the point. Short answer, I love them. I hate cork. True. I'm not joking there, but that's a topic for another uh, show. The screw tops have tons of advantages. They've come a long way. I know they have a bad rap because they were originally used primarily, if not exclusively, for jug wines, but they're not just for jug wines anymore. They have a great one called Stelvin that pretty much everyone is using. And I'm going to tick off a few of the advantages to that as opposed to the cork. First of all, pretty obvious. You don't need a corkscrew. Uh, It's very easy to open. Although I did take a class once, believe it or not, a Society of Wine Educators conference where the people that make stealth enclosures were giving this seminar for us. And I didn't know this before then, but the proper way to open it is to not turn the top of the cap. If you hold the collar very firmly in your hand and twist the bottle. It's so much easier to get the bottle open. But anyway, no corkscrew, no possibility of cork taint, that TCA that destroys so many wines out there. Although having said that, it's getting a lot better. We went through a period where, believe it or not, in some major tastings where they were opening thousands of dollars worth of wine, numbering in the thousands of bottles, they were getting sometimes 15, 16% cork taint or some kind of off flavor from the cork in some way. That is totally unacceptable. And the fact that we're using these screw caps now has put less pressure on the cork industry. So the corks have actually gotten better. One of the little bit of inside baseball things here is when you use that closure, you only need to use one third of the sulfites to preserve the wine. So the wine's fresher and cleaner. Now, sulfur's not necessarily a bad thing. It actually occurs naturally in the wine. And when they add it, it helps prevent microbial spoilage. But the problem comes in with the regular cork, you have to add a lot more of it. And sometimes you can actually smell and taste it in the wine. Believe it or not, just this past week, we had a 2021 Louis Latour Ardèche Chardonnay. We opened two different bottles because we were 
shocked at how pronounced that cork, uh, not the uh, the cork taint, but the sulfur taint was. It comes across like a burnt matchstick, and it's it's really kind of acrid. The good news is when you have the bottle open for a while, it tends to blow off. If you want to hasten that process, just toss the wine in a decanter. But it really does make a difference having the le the lesser amount of sulfur being used there, especially with red wines, because what happens when there's that extra sulfur in the wine, it kind of numbs the aromas and flavors of the wine. Now, within a few months, the sulfur binds with other elements and those aromas and flavors come back. But under that screw cap, you have an extra added dimension of aroma and flavor, especially noticeable for me in the reds as well as the whites. So that's a uh, that's a huge uh, benefit there. The other thing is, many people don't know this, the wines age beautifully under the screw cap. As a matter of fact, they age much, much more predictably, which is really important when you're spending a lot of money on a bottle. Um, I was helping to judge a sommelier competition, Illegal Seafoods, uh, a few years back. And one of the wines they used was a 2006 Kimu River Chardonnay that was under screw cap, under the Stelvin. The wine showed beautifully, even though it was quite old. But the nice part of that is I got to bring my wife, Andrea, back to that restaurant. We enjoyed that same wine and it tasted exactly the same as it did when I originally tasted it. If it were under regular cork, I guarantee you that would not have been the case. It would have showed either younger or older. The air permeability of cork varies amazingly. So it's really great to have a closure like that. They're actually working on the seal to allow them to control the degree of air permeability to really mimic that of a cork. So they can make them so that they age a little bit faster, but again, they tend to age slower um, under the Stelvin. More and more expensive wines are using them. One of the first people that started it was Plump Jack. They put their Cabernet that was selling for over $100 a bottle under the Stelvin closure, the screw cap, and under regular cork as well, you could purchase it either way. But in the beginning, they actually charged you an extra $10 for the uh, closure, for the Stelvin closure. And I and everyone else I know really went to that one. Silvio Yerman, uh, the person that makes vintage Tunino, which has a reputation as the very finest white of all of Italy, has been bottling under screw cap for years now. And last but not least, Henschke, the Hill of Grace Shiraz from Australia, which sells over $900 a bottle, is also using screw caps. So as I mentioned, they're not just for jugs anymore. And if given the opportunity, it does happen on occasion, they'll bottle under cork and or under screw caps, sometimes 50-50, I always go for the screw cap. What I wanted to do next is just put a little cap on the food and wine matching uh, discussion that we've been having here. The last time we met, I was talking about certain wines seem to have such an affinity for certain foods 
that's so strong that even if the sauce gets in the way, it seems to work. And we talked about salmon and Pinot Noir, lamb and roan and uh, duck and Pinot Noir. One of the really interesting ones for me was pairing a veal chop with Rioja. And the match there was based more on the textures. Sounds a bit odd, but the veal chop has a smoother texture for me than a, an actual steak. And the Rioja made primarily from the Tempranillo grape, which is low in acidity, seems to come across very smooth and velvety. And there's that kind of match there of the, uh, the textures. Veal Marsala was a tough one for us. We tried a number of whites that we liked, but we really felt we needed a red. Very often you're putting mushrooms and things like that in there that would indicate a red. We went through 40 different wines that we all thought were going to be good matches and came up with Repasso Method Valpolicella. Just one of those amazing matches with the Marsala. It's, it's to the point where if we want to have chicken Marsala or Ville Marsala or whatever, and we don't have a Repasso Method Valpolicella, we usually do Allegrini's. We won't make it that day. We'll make it once we can get a bottle of the Valpolicella. Barbecue. Now we're talking here smoked ribs and uh, kind of a spicy tomato-based barbecue sauce and that kind of thing is handled absolutely beautifully by American Zinfandel. The interesting thing here is the cheaper ones tend to have more fruit and less alcohol. And you get this beautiful kind of spicy raspberry, uh, maybe a little hint of cherry in there. And it just handles the smoke from the, the ribs and the barbecue sauce and all that amazingly well. One of the matches that we found surprising, we happened upon by accident in a restaurant, was arugula and Gruner Veltliner. Gruner Veltliner is a wine from Austria. It's a white wine that has fairly high acidity to it, but is very different than almost any other white I can think of in that it has a pronounced note of ground white pepper in it. And I've been through seminars where we tasted tons of them and uh, they all seem to have that in common. And there's something about that with that kind of spiciness of the arugula, the peppery spiciness that works amazingly well together. The match is so strong that we experimented it at home with different gruners and putting in different elements like maybe goat cheese and strawberries and all kinds of different things that we thought might throw the gruner off a bit, but it still worked amazingly well. Smoked salmon's one that people tend to go to champagne for, and that can work. Believe it or not, there are some champagnes that have... Uh, some oak aging to them. There are not that many of them, but those can create a little bit of a bad flavor between them. The wine match that never fails, that we've never been uh, less than absolutely delighted with is German Riesling. There's something about that light touch of fruit in that beautiful, lively acidity. Man, it just works perfectly together. Now, a couple of blue cheeses have different wines that tend to work with them. 
Stilton cheese and port go way back. That was the match that everyone has always gone to that really does work amazingly well. The match with Roquefort cheese, however, for me is sauterne. We talked about that last week. They, they make the wines from these grapes that are botrytis affected and it, it shrivels them and really concentrates the sugars and acidity there and gives them a bit of a spiciness. One of the things that I might mention is when we were talking about matching wines with dessert, you know, we we're talking about the wine must always be sweeter than the dessert. If it's not, it'll make the wine taste bitter. Well, the same phenomenon of tasting a sweet wine, tasting the sweet dessert, and then going back to the sweet wine and having it seem much, much, much less sweet, that same thing happens when you do sweet wines with blue cheeses. There's something about that bitter saltiness of the cheese that makes the wine seem much, much, much less sweet. And it's just really working beautifully together. Another classic match with Sauterne uh, that tends to work every time is sautéed foie gras. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those matches made in heaven that people go to again and again and really does work magically. Last but not least, I wanted to talk about matching wine with lobster. Now, many people, I've mentioned this before, go to Chardonnay because think, ah, buttery, buttery, it's going to work. For us, it really doesn't at all because of the, the lower acid rich quality of it. It doesn't have that freshness and brightness to revive the palate from all that drawn butter. What we love with it, the two wines that are our absolute favorite are Albarino, the uh, Spanish wine from the Rio Spicious region of Spain. That's kind of where Spain meets the Atlantic Ocean meets Portugal. Uh, that's very aromatic and a little bit lower in acid, a little bit lower in alcohol, but higher in acid. It kind of has these peach blossomy qualities, really phenomenal with lobster. Our other match that we love is a cabinet level German Riesling. There's something about that touch of sweetness in the Riesling that seems to bring out a sweetness in the lobster meat, but at the same time, the acidity really kind of cleanses the palate. So we were sitting down to a dinner of lobster and drawn butter one day, and we had a bottle of each open. My wife, Andrew, and I love to go back and forth. Oh, which one do you like better? Oh, I think I like this one. I don't know. Maybe it's close. I like that one. Anyway, we both agreed that the Albarino light years better than the German Riesling. Then I stopped to think about the fact that we were using unsalted butter. You know, I put a little bit of table salt in the next bite and it flipped the match. Now the German Riesling was definitely better than the Albarino. Now, I just bring that up to let you know there's a lot of stuff at play here. But you should have fun when you're doing these matches and, and kind of going, uh, playing with them and going back and forth. Uh, if you really are interested in learning about food and wine matching, you can do one simple thing that'll really help you learn amazingly faster. And that is every time you sit down to the table and you have a dish of fruit in front of you, always have two different wines open. Because if you have one wine, it tends to either work with the dish or it doesn't work. 
and it doesn't really stimulate thought. But if you have two different wines, invariably one works better than the other, and that gets you to thinking why. So if you do nothing other than that, you're going to be surprised at how much more you'll uh, learn from the experience. And it, again, it's fun. If you can't have fun with this, please don't do it. Just to tie this whole wine and food matching thing up with a bow, because I've been talking about it a long time. It's a real passion of mine. I wanted to mention uh, to you the dream dinner that I put on that was by far the best wine and food matching dinner I've ever been part of. And it came about in a funny way. I was working at a large retail store and they had two bottles of the 1967 Chateau Ikem in, left in the cellar. And I paid, you know, the, the store paid $250 per bottle for them. I looked at the beverage journal, which is where you get the pricing for the wines. It went up to $1,250 a bottle in one fell swoop, exactly the same wine. So the thought's going through my head. Gee, you know, some millionaire is probably going to come and buy both of these and enjoy them. But why not give a lot of people the chance to experience one of the best wines ever made in the world? And I went on a six-year, excuse me, a, a six-month quest to come up with other wines that might not be quite to that level, but that would kind of be in the same league, to put it mildly. And here's what we did. We started with Krug Champagne. It's considered by many to be the best champagne bar none. The Wine Spectator just did a major article on champagne, and it was by far the highest scoring the Clona Maniel uh, there. But the first white we had was a 1947 white Moulin Touche, which is a very slightly, just about dry, but just very slight touch of uh, sweetness to it, wine from the Loire Valley. Um, that wine was spectacular. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to try the 1959 Moulin Touche side by side with it earlier. And believe it or not, after tasting the 59, you could see where there was still resolution that hadn't taken place in it because the 1947 was so perfectly resolved. And we did that with the roulade of foie gras by Petrosian. One of the other showcase wines was an 1850 Dolivera Reserve Verdejo Madeira. That wine spent 130 years in cask. We're talking pre-Civil War wine. Was amazing with this lobster ravioli with a lobster beurre blanc and puff pastry that we did with that. The next wine was a Grand Cru White Burgundy, the 1983 Ramenet Batard Montcrichet, which many people at that time considered to be one of the finest White Burgundies made. We had it with a pheasant strudel with a warm, wear comp uh, warm pear compote and sage, and it was an amazing match. Just to let you know, I did this dinner at the Harvard Street uh, Grill with John Vinick who actually, before opening that, was executive chef at the Ritz-Carlton in its heyday and had over 300 people working for him. We spent over an hour and a half going over 
just the garnishes on the plate and what else was going to work with the wine and, and what wouldn't. Then with this loin of venison, we had two 66 Bordeaux, the Chateau Latour, which many people, myself included, considered the finest Bordeaux. And a second growth, Pichon Lalonde, that is the quality equivalent of any first growth right now. But the next pairing with the next two wines was my explosive moment of the meeting where of the of the whole dinner where these wines were just so incredibly matched with the dish it was a 1971 prince de moreau corton le renard which is a grand cru red burgundy and a 1958 badia colta bono chianti classico reserva we had those matched with a warm goat cheese and walnut tart with sun-dried cherries and walnut oil. And my God, the, the sparks were just flying there. Then came the Chateau Ikem, which we had with a whole variety of desserts. And believe it or not, that wasn't the end. We finished with cheese and some chocolate with two 1963 vintage ports, the Fonseca and the Wars. So... That was the best wine and food matching dinner that I ever did. And I, I think uh, the best one that I'm ever going to be part of. One of the last things I wanted to do in the show today, because, you know, Christmas is coming up and it's always fun to have gifts that you can buy for the wine lover in your life, is talk about how to preserve leftover wine. And that's a question I get asked a lot because very often, you know, people will share a bottle. They say, you know, we feel like one more glass, but if we open the bottle, you know, it's going to go bad. A couple different ways to help prevent that spoilage. First of all, one of the simplest things, just throw it in the refrigerator. It helps prevent the microbial spoilage in the wine the same way the refrigerator would with the, you know, milk or whatever you're, you're storing in there. Uh, the only thing is, if it's a red wine, you have to make sure that you take it out in time for the temperature to come back up to make it a, a good drinking temperature. One of the simplest ways and one of the most effective is just to take an empty half bottle of wine, fill it to the top, and then put a cork in it. Either that or sometimes we have half bottles that have that screw cap on it and you just screw the top on. That's like you've actually recorked the bottle. I was working with someone and we, when I was working professionally as the wine educator, I was always part of these big tastings where people were opening tons of different wines. And in one case, one of our people had a bottle that he had opened, but had not poured any wine out of. And he pushed the cork all the way back in it. Five years later, he opened that bottle. And actually mentioned to me the wine was fantastic. So that's a very simple way that doesn't really cost any money. But there are these really kind of cool uh, wine preservation systems out there. Some are relatively inexpensive. The one that we always used, you know, we talked about the 10,000 matches over the three-year period where the 12 different bottles open in the house at all times. We kept those wines under vacuum then. And what that is, you put this rubber stopper in the bottle and then pump it out with this plastic pump. You pump out the air 
and it creates a vacuum in the bottle. It's very good for preserving a wine for maybe a week, 10 days. It doesn't go too much longer than that, but those are great Christmas presents. It can be a stocking stuffer. The pump with six stoppers is only $25. And if you want to do the one with two stoppers, it's only $15. And you can actually purchase extra stoppers individually. The only real downside of that is it's hard to tell if you've done it or not. So sometimes people will put the rubber uh, stopper back in without evacuating it. If you're talking about champagne, they do do something where they have a closure that actually adds pressure to the bottle. And I never felt that was necessary. Uh, What we always used was just a really good champagne stopper. Cuisinart makes a fantastic one for $8. It's the type we like where you put it in and then these two arms come around the side of the bottle and and hold it firmly into place. But if you want to save the bottle for a longer period of time, one of my absolute favorite uh, preservatives is this Vineyard Fresh Wine Preserver. What it is, is it's a can that's filled with 100% argon gas. It's an inert gas. It's the same gas that they use in the wineries to uh, prevent exposure to the air, uh, of the air to the wine, that it's unwanted. You know, they want to keep the wine really fresh and clean and young. It's heavier than air, so you just put two little squirts in the bottle. And that works amazingly well. It really came home to me how fantastic this was when once um, we were, I was having a birthday and we were having scallops because I love scallops and my wife, not so much. So our favorite wine with that, we're pulling out a really nice bottle is Condrieu, a white wine made from Viognier in the Northern Rhone. Very expensive. And we happened to open a, a pretty good one. Only drank half the bottle because we always do several different courses and with different wines and all that. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we might not get to this for a while. And I hit it with actually three little squirts of Vineyard Fresh and put it back in the refrigerator. The next year to the day, my next birthday, we were having scallops again. And the thought occurred to me, I had another bottle of the of a different Condrieu there just in case. But why not try um, the one with the, the Vineyard Fresh in it? It tasted phenomenal. No degradation of flavor at all. Um, If anything, it almost tasted better than it did the year before because it was a a little tight and wasn't quite open enough and was just absolutely uh, incredible. So that, again, very inexpensive. You can buy a bottle for $15 that they say will save 50 different bottles of wine. I don't know if it'll do necessarily 50. I always put a little extra in, especially if it's a really good wine that I want to make sure is going to be fine. But the ultimate wine preserver, and now we're talking a little more money, is something called Coravant. It's really a fascinating little gadget. It has these clamps that go around the bottle with 
this lever that has a long needle on it. And what you do is clamp the the uh, levers around the, not the levers, but the, the clamps around the bottle and then push the needle in through the cork without pulling the cork out. Then you very carefully tilt it to the side and press a button and it'll pour wine out while replacing the wine that's coming out of the bottle with argon gas. I had a chance to meet the gentleman that invented it at a, uh, at a dinner one day, and he said that he had bottles at his house that were nine years old, where he had taken the wine out of them, and he went back to them nine years later, and they were in perfect condition. Now, the only thing about them is they are a little more expensive. They tend to run in the $175 to $250 range. And the replacement capsules that contain the argon gas, here again, 100% argon gas, are expensive. You can get about yeah, maybe 10 or 15 pours, a glass each, out of each capsule, and then you have to replace it. So those are some great ways to preserve wine and also some great gift ideas for the wine lover in your family. While you're on to that, one of the books I wanted to mention that is arguably, I know this might seem a grandiose statement, the finest wine book ever written is the Oxford Companion to Wine. Um, they just did a new edition here. It's the fifth edition. Now, it was getting a little long in the tooth. It was eight or nine years since they did the other one. This just came out 2023, this year. And it is by far the most amazing wine reference book I have ever seen. I got it the second it was available, literally within a day or two of its uh, release. And I was thinking to myself, did they really update everything? I tend to be a little skeptical and went through a number of different articles and every one of them that I looked at was updated. They have the world's foremost experts on whatever the topic is. Just really a phenomenal gift. Retails for 65, you can get it for uh, 55, but that would be an incredible gift for the wine lover in your life. Len, always appreciate it. And unfortunately, the time is up. I wish we had a full hour. Who knows? Maybe we'll extend to that in the near future. But this has been wonderful. And as always, how can folks reach out to you when it comes time for them to ask their wine by design questions? That would be via email, lenwmex at gmail.com or lenwmex at gmail.com. Len, thank you as always. And folks, don't forget to catch Wine by Design every Friday here at 6 o'clock and with Uncle Tony's Influential Italian Music Hour at 2.30 every Friday. Wine, uh, wine. <laughs> Len, thank you for your wine knowledge. Appreciate you, and we are excited to catch you next time around. Thank you so much. Truly my pleasure, Ben. Thank you.
WMEX Quincy Boston. Streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say play WMEX.